It has been a full three weeks now since we were last in Genesis. Um, not going to spend a lot of time retracing steps that we've already walked. Uh, I think you're all pretty familiar with the story now. Uh, a quick capsulation of it is that Esau and Jacob, uh, born to Isaac and Rachel, um, lived a life of enmity toward each other, particularly Esau toward Jacob. Uh, Jacob, whose name means deceiver or he who cheats, was actually born clutching and grasping the heel of his elder brother, elder by uh, a few moments anyway. Um, and so he was given that name, the one who cheats. Through the course of Jacob's life, he, he lived up well to that name. Uh, he had first deceived and tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright, and then later, coached by his mother Rachel, had also deceived his father into thinking he was Esau uh, and tricked Esau out of his right of the, the blessings of his father. And those were important blessings as well. Uh, it was the right of the firstborn uh, to receive, first of all, a double portion uh, of all his brothers and sisters. Secondly, he would be the patriarch of the family, the, the head and the leader of family worship and family decisions. And most importantly, for this particular lineage, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Abraham, or uh, Jacob, uh, it meant that God's providence in the eternal covenant would also be inherited by him. He would be the one that carried on the promise that God had given. And so in response to discovering that uh, he had been deceived and tricked out of this, Esau, upon learning of it, uh, plotted his brother's murder, saying that as soon as dad dies, you die. Rachel, upon hearing this herself, uh, sent Jacob away to his uncle Laban in the land of Paddan Aram to a place called Haran. And it was there that Jacob lived for the next 20 years. Uh, he spent the first seven years working for uh, who he thought would be his bride, Rachel, whom he loved. Uh, it turns out that Laban was a bit of a trickster himself and had deceived Jacob and had given him Leah, the, the eldest daughter, instead. So Jacob, still loving Rachel, worked another seven years uh, for her hand as well. And then, tending the flocks, and by God's provision and trickery of his own once more, uh, also acquired great wealth over the next six years. So, 20 years in all. And so now, coming to chapter 35, uh, Jacob has been told to leave Laban. He is no longer in favor with Laban or his sons. And God has directed him to return to the land of his kindred. So he has taken his wife and his wife and his wife and his wife and all of their kids and all of their flocks and he is moving again southward from whence he came. But now as we open in chapter 35, Jacob in Shechem has been away from home for as many as 30 years. And it's been as many as 30 years since Jacob made a vow to God. 
enveloped by crisis because of his son's outrage against the, the city of Shechem, Jacob is a man lost. He's not lost in the sense that he doesn't know his way back to where he came from. He, he knows the road map. He's come this way before. But he is lost in the events of tragedy, treachery, and terror. Where in Jacob's memories, Bethel must be the shining light. He must seem now to be in his darkest hour. Overwhelmed by his, his daughter's defiling rape. His son's contemptible murder of the men of Shechem. And the following plunder of the city. He knows that he and his family are now in grave danger. They are in dire straits. He is rightfully fearful of retaliation by the neighboring nations of Canaan and the Perizzites. And though he's not endured the familial devastation known by Job, who lost all of his sons and all of his daughters, he knows that he is fearful and in danger of a similar circumstance. Should they be attacked, they would be outnumbered and his family would be wiped out. In short, Jacob is not having his best life now. So let's begin, but before we do, uh, let me take us to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. It is good to be here with my brothers and sisters in the house of God before our great and glorious King. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do a wondrous work here today, that it would be your truth spoken, Lord God, that though these words would be meager from my mouth, that they would be carried and empowered by the working of your Spirit, made great, Lord God, by your anointing. Father, as I preach today, Lord, I pray that you would use your truth, that you would use it, Lord God, to change and impact lives, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, to raise up those who have lingered long when you would have them go out and come forth. Father, I pray that it would sanctify those in Christ and bring conviction upon those who are not. Father, I pray that you would forgive the sins of the one who preaches they are many, and I am desperate for your grace. We give you all of the glory, all of the praise, Lord God. Be with us during this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. Against the backdrop of Jacob's fear of the nations, we read about in chapter 3430, God here encourages the patriarch, instructing him from Shechem now to depart for Bethel. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In remembering the past, 
to pass where God has appeared to him at Bethel. Jacob would be prepared to face the future. The trials, the tribulations coming his way. Trials and tribulations he fully expected would place his family in great and imminent danger. Chapter 35 provides for us a series of events, including four burials, which will serve as doors, closing on the past, as well as events such as movement and birth, which will serve as doors of expectation for the future. But ultimately, today's text will present a beautiful portrait of Jacob's provision, protection, and divine guidance. He was cared for by the loving kindness of his covenant-honoring God, the one true living God, who, as we'll see, along with Jacob, has been with him wherever he's gone. Let me read again verses 1 through 4. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Here we find God communing with Jacob for the fourth time. Twice before, in Genesis 28 and 31, God has appeared to Jacob in dreams. That's pretty crazy, pretty incredible. But that's not the only way God has appeared to Jacob. He also appeared to him in Genesis 32, in an octagon at Peniel, where God and Jacob wrestled. But now it's been ten full years since Jacob left Laban, and ten years since God last spoke, back in chapter 31, when he directed him to leave and return to the land of his kindred. So, how long ought such a journey take? How long should it take for Jacob to return to the land of his kindred? Scripture doesn't give us uh, any markers by which we can build a scriptural timeline for the journey that Jacob took northward when he fled from Esau to, Her to the Haran and the, the land of Laban, his uncle. But it does tell us that the trip back, beginning with God's directive in chapter 31, verse 13, to go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred, that that journey back, that southward journey, was marked by stages. But even then, we need to know 
How far is the distance he traveled? So in doing some, some research for this, I discovered that Haran to Shechem, where Joseph or Jacob began to, to where Jacob is now, is approximately 400 miles. Now God has called him to go to Bethel, and that's another 20 miles. That's another 35 miles to Mamre or, or Hebron, where his father is. All in all, we have a distance of 455 miles. Now, acknowledging that there's no light rail or bullet train, uh, there's no cars, and that Jacob and his entourage of women and children and flocks that they have to keep herded and sorted and pointed in the right direction are going to move slowly and walk that distance, 455 miles. If we account for only five miles per day, this is a journey which should take about 91 days, three months. But again, Jacob has got some old folks with him, got some guys like me that don't move so quick. Jacob himself now is about 107, so he's probably not running ahead of everybody either. So if we say that between the kids and between the elderly and between the, the keeping of the flocks pointed in the right direction, that they can only make two and a half miles a day, or perhaps because of those old folks and the, the care of the children, they only travel five miles every other day. We have 182 days, six months. But it's taken Jacob 10 years. And so what accounts for that? Well, we know that Genesis 33, 17 tells that when he had stopped in Succoth, the place just before he arrived at Shechem, that he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. This was, in fact, a solid structure house. It was a place to set up housekeeping and residence and live in. But yet, the word for house here uh, can, in fact, also be used uh, to mean household. Uh, it can, in fact, also mean the things within a house. Uh, Exodus 20, 17 uses the word that way, where God's commandments tell us that we're not to covet or, or to covet uh, our neighbor's house, meaning his wife and his children, his property, those things within the house. But here it is used in the same sense that it's used in 1 Chronicles 14.1, where Hiram, the king of Tyre, is sending to David workmen, timber, masons, things necessary to build a house for himself, a structure. So here in Succoth, rather than following God's direction, Jacob has stopped. And he was there for a time being before moving on to Shechem. And even here in Shechem we find that he has pitched his tent and bought land. You don't buy land when you're just passing through. 
here too he intended to stay. And in fact, it was his staying here that brought about the, the tragedy besetting his daughter. And then later, in retaliation, inciting his sons to murder and pillage. He has no business here. This is not where God has called him. And so, after displaying great patience and love with Jacob, God speaks again for the first time in ten years. His words begin with four imperatives. Arise. Go up. Dwell and make. With these words, God instructs Jacob to depart Shechem for Bethel. And once arriving there, he's to build an altar. And this directive points back to God's promise for Jacob. I will bring you back to this land. Words spoken back in chapter 28, 10 through 15. Words which God has now fulfilled. He has brought him back. It's not God that has failed. Jacob stopped. And this is because of Jacob's own forgotten vow. A vow to establish Bethel as a place of worship. A vow made back in chapter 28 as well. Verses 20 through 22. Fight or flight. We all know what that means, right? When confronted with danger, we either put them up or get them going. But here, Jacob does neither. He neither fights nor flees. Here, in the face of his dilemma, he is vapor-locked. He is a deer caught in the headlights of crisis. And his passivity once again cripples him and requires that God speak into the situation. And so God issues his necessary command. Jacob, arise! Get up, Jacob. Get dressed and get going. As he told the Israelites, you've been here too long. Go up. Go up where? Go up to Bethel. This is one of those verses that I really enjoy because critics and skeptics will cite verses such as this as, as the false attribution of test, or testimony to God. Bethel, go up. <laughs> See, the Bible's wrong because Bethel's south of Shechem. You don't go up to Bethel. You go down to Bethel. Well, you can't trust this. <laughs> they don't know. Geographically, they're right. Geographically, Bethel is south of Shechem. 
But God's never wrong. Because topographically, Bethel is about a thousand miles higher. A thousand feet. <laughs> a thousand miles pretty way up. <laughs> topographically, Bethel is up from Shechem. Verses like this only affirm, validate, and add integrity to God's Word. Once you get there, Jacob, don't stop for a visit. Don't say hi as you're going through. Dwell there. Get up and away from the world, Jacob. Come and be separate. And apart from the idolatrous nations around you. Move and settle into the holy place of God. You know, it's an amazing thing for the Christian because our proximity to God isn't established by any effort on our part. God doesn't call us to arise and get up and come near to Him but by grace and in His love and in His mercy, He left His home and He drew near to us through Christ. And now in Christ, God doesn't just dwell near us, but for those who have come to live for Him and believe in Him by faith, He dwells in us both in His Word and in His Spirit. We find those truths written for us in Colossians 3.16, Romans 8 and 11, and Galatians 2.19 through 20, verses telling us that God's Word dwells in us and His Spirit dwells in us, that God has come near. And where he dwells, Jacob is to now also make an altar. Jacob is called to fulfill a long-neglected vow. Ten years since Shechem, but thirty years overall neglected. God is telling Jacob, set before your people now and those who will come after you a place of worship. A symbol of faith in the God who has kept you and kept your fathers before you with an everlasting covenant. Genesis 2 and 3. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. Shaken now from his complacency, Jacob commands his household too, to prepare. 
not just to prepare for that arduous 20-mile trip to Bethel, just about a day away. That doesn't require great preparation except packing up. But he's told them to prepare spiritually. Prepare your hearts for religious service. We see in Isaiah 61.10. Turn with me there if you would. We see other occasions where God has asked His people to prepare themselves spiritually. And where He has, as these people did physically, dressed them in new garments. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Read again in Zechariah 3, 1-5. through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Has God not also changed the Christian's garments? Do we not wear now the, the gloriously white robes of Christ's imputed righteousness? And did He not for us as well make shed of our filthy garments? Garments which the Bible says our righteousness is like those filthy rags of self-righteousness? Genesis 4, then, describes the, the family's obedience. They put away and they gave to Jacob all those, those false gods, those idols, those terebinths they had in their possession, and the earrings. Now, the earrings could have either been earrings that they were wearing that were charms and associated with the idols, or they may have actually been earrings in the idols. 
archaeological finds includes those. Either way, these were household gods. They likely included those that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban. You remember that pursuit that Laban came after Jacob when he had first left? And he searched Jacob's camp, but Rachel had hidden them beneath her and and told her father, I'm in the way of women and you, you don't want to look here. It's likely she still had those. As well, it's likely that Jacob's sons had absconded with and kept many of those household gods, those good luck charms, if you will, when they had plundered the city of Shechem. You have a rabbit's foot, you have a lucky coin, a four-leaf clover, same thing. These were good luck charms. And now Jacob is calling for everyone to surrender all of them. And in obedience they do so. And Jacob buries them beneath the terebinth tree. And here we find in this chapter our first funeral. A good funeral. A funeral which we should all attend the putting away and the burial of false gods. Does that story in any way sound familiar to you? Calling together the people at Shechem, the command for them to surrender their false gods, the command to prepare their hearts for the worship of God. If not, It will. Would you all turn with me, please, to the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter. There we will read verses 1 through 5, and then we will jump to verses 14 and 15 to conclude that reading. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Move with me now to verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here is Jacob essentially saying the same thing. Choose this day. But me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Heads of families. And I'm speaking primarily to those families who have men as their head. I know that there are some families where that's not the case. And so in those instances, and I hope there are few here, this speaks to the mothers as well, but primarily I speak to those heads of homes who are men. We should be using that authority not just given, but commanded by God to head and lead our homes, to keep religion alive and well. Not that religion of the world, not a religion of works, but a religion of faith in a living God presented always before our homes. We should not just be saying, but we should be living. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. One of the greatest problems amongst Christian homes right now is Christian men failing in leadership. Some of those husbands just don't even know that they're supposed to be leading. That's certainly not what society tells us. That's certainly not what television tells us. We're to be blithering idiots and dependent upon our high school children. But that's not what God says. And if you've been here for any time, you know that that's not what this church preaches. Others simply don't know how to lead. God's Word declares how to read, lead. This church, the men in this church, will be more than happy to help you learn how to lead. We love God and we love you and we want you to honor Him and honor your family in leadership. But there are others still who simply refuse to lead. And holding no punches, we call you coward. Arise. We see in Joshua and Jacob both in these two parallel stories, though 400 and something years apart, 
manners in which we should lead. We should lead in love. Loving above all others the Lord our God. And next, committing our love to our families above self. We live in such a selfish society. Everything is me-centered, me first. What about me? What about you? What about them? Who sets before them the example? And that's another way we're to lead. Amen. By example. We should be initiating worship. Not waiting for the pastor or the church or whoever. But leading by example and initiating worship and service to God. Praying with our families. Leading them in the Word. Leading them in confession and repentance. Pride be damned. We should be leading our families spiritually. Trusting not to our own wit or ways, but looking to and leaning on the God who has given us life and breath and every good thing. Demonstrate humility, dependence, and devotion. Matthew Henry writes, Where we have a tent, God must have an altar. Where we have a house, He must have a church in it. May your home be a church. Moving now to Genesis 35, 5 through 7. Let's follow Jacob on his journey. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. His whole life, from every waking moment just about, Jacob had contended with fear. We read about his fear of God in Genesis 28, 17. We know of his fear of Laban in Genesis 31, 31. And his fear of Esau cited in Genesis 27, 42 and 32, 7 and 11. That's, that's no stranger to us. That's why he fled home. That's why he went to Laban's. Out of fear. That's why he left Laban's, out of fear. 
And that's why he sits quivering now at Shechem, afraid of the neighboring Canaanites and Perizzites. He's in fear. In fact, throughout his life, no one has been afraid of Jacob. Jacob and his little apron and yes mommy it's not a real frightful picture I got to admit people have been angry with Jacob lots of people have been angry with Jacob but no one's been afraid of Jacob but now traveling from Shechem to Bethel all of that changes Those people around them are struck with terror and fear of Jacob and his sons and his people. Now understand, it's not Jacob's sons they're afraid of. Yeah, these guys have just murdered a bunch of men in a town, but they kind of went about it a little backhandedly. They kind of cut them, let's say, with their pants down. <laughs> They're not afraid of them. That's the reason they're angry with them. That's the reason they would come and kill them because of the treachery they committed against Shechem. Unjustified murders. This is a supernatural terror which God has bestowed upon them. It's a supernatural terror that we find elsewhere as well in Scripture. 2 Chronicles 17.10 And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. And they made no war against Jehoshaphat. And Proverbs 16, 7, and this speaks to us as well. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So now the, the inhabitants of the land are frightened, and Jacob's frightened. But Calvin notes this, that God chooses and assigns Bethel rather than any other place for Jacob's sanctuary because the very sight of it would greatly avail to take away terror when he would remember that there the glory of the Lord has been seen by him. Regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our situation, no matter how traumatic or terrifying it may be, if we can get our eyes off of it and our eyes onto God, the one overcomes the other. That's what God is doing for Jacob when he sends him to Bethel. I know what you're facing, but remember me.
35.6 briefly says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. It is significant that the name Luz is mentioned here. Luz means separation. Bethel, in fact, its new name means the house of God. So how are the two related? Well, they're related for Jacob. Because Jacob was gaining a new chance. A new chance to be separate and apart and distinct from the world around him. And in leaving Shechem, he was entering the house of God. Neither do we want to miss the importance of the naming of the altar he established there. El Bethel. When God first appeared here to Jacob, you remember, he appeared in the, the dream where he had the vision of the ladder that went up to heaven. And the angels of God ascended and descended upon the ladder. And the Lord Himself stood atop it. That was a pretty impressive vision. That would rock your world. And Jacob was pretty darn impressed with that place where he had that vision. So impressed, in fact, that he... He named it Bethel, the house of God, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place? I'd have to concur. That's a pretty awesome place. But now Jacob is older. Probably about 107 now. Almost my age. <laughs> And he's also much more mature, spiritually more mature. His emphasis in returning is no longer on the place, but instead it's on the person. El Bethel, God of the house of God. Jacob now sees with eyes which are indisputably much older, but in their age spiritually seeing much more clearly. That's a natural progression for us, whether it's moving from the physical youth to the physical aged, or spiritual youth to spiritual maturity. In our walk with God, by Christ and through His Spirit, we typically begin with a great care and concern for the things of this world. The places and the people of this world. Yes, we love God. Yes, we are indebted to God. And yes, we are Christian. But as we age... And have more opportunity to look back at trials and tribulations. Testing and turmoil which God has seen us through. 
we have greater opportunity for remembrance of what God has done. And so we see less importantly those things, the things of this world, and more importantly, the one who is sovereign over this world. Less the place, more the person. That's one of the beautiful experiences of growing old. You know, there are people in this world, there are Christians in this world, perhaps amongst us now, who though their days are shorter, fear that day of death. Uncertain and unwilling to part with the things of this life, the relations of this life, with one hand they grasp God and the other they cling tightly to the things of this world. But as we age and grow in Christ, we should be able to relinquish our hold on anything here. Do we love our loved ones? Yes. Do we labor hard for those provisions that God enables? Yes. Do we care about making sure that food is on the table and that bills are paid? All those necessary practical things? Yeah. But we know that God is able to tend to them without us. That He loves them more than us. And that when we depart this world, we depart to Him. Genesis 35.8 now brings us to a seemingly misplaced and odd to find it here verse. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bacuth. This is unusual in a few ways. One, because it's peculiar that Deborah is mentioned here at all. Only once before in all of the words of Scripture is she mentioned. And that only as Rebekah's nurse when they were departing the land of Laban, her father's land. And there she's just called Rebecca's nurse. Here is the only time in Scripture where she's named. And it's strange that her death and funeral, the second in this chapter, would be mentioned when the death and funeral of Rebecca is not. So this leaves us with some questions. Questions which we admittedly, if we are to answer, must answer with speculation. Because Scripture simply does not provide 
for the answers to them. And first is that question of why record the death of Deborah, but not Rebecca. Some have suggested that it's because uh, Rebecca took the idols of her father when she left, that she was not a true believer. Don't know. She had left the land of idolatry and false gods, but there's no reason to believe that she was not now firmly entrenched in the faith of her husband, Isaac. But beyond that, the question is when, why, and how did she come to be in Jacob's camp? When Jacob left, she had been with his mother Rebekah, with Isaac. And he had traveled to Haran, Laban's home, and, and lived there and been gone for 30 years now. So how did she get here? There's much speculation by scholars on this, some even suggesting that Jacob had been visiting back and forth his father, but had been intentionally side-skirting Bethel to avoid fulfilling his vow. He'd been going the long way around. I just don't see any call to believe that. I see nothing in Scripture or in the life of Jacob that would allow that. So me being me, and a, a bit of a practically minded person, I wondered if it wasn't just that knowing in a few chapters that Isaac uh, will be expired, that perhaps he was now ill and Deborah was sent to advise Jacob. Perhaps someone else went to advise Esau. We know they were both at the funeral of their father. Admittedly, they weren't that far. But it's all speculation. What we can know from Scripture, we can know peripherally. Deborah's name meant be. And it's likely that that was a very much a trait of her character, that she was busy and attentive to those in her charge. We know that she was valued. We know that she was loved. And we know that her death brought sorrow to Jacob and those in his family. We know that from the naming of the tree, Alon Bakath, Oak of Weeping. Jacob was heartbroken over her death. Surely he had known her in his youth and been tended to her by her. So with esteem, she is honored in her burial. Genesis 35, 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. 
No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings. Lost my place. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Here again, God appears to Jacob for yet a fifth time. And this is an occasion of blessing. But it's no new blessing that God brings. It's a confirming reiteration of that given before. He gives him a new name. What gift should any man desire more than a new name from God? Isaiah 62.2 says, The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Revelations 3 and 22 tell us that the day will come when the saints of God have the name of God engraved upon them. Your name is now engraved upon the book of life. It's written there with the blood of Christ. God also again secures His role in the covenantal plan. And He not only echoes the promises formerly spoken to Abraham and Isaac, but amazingly He does it with the same means of delivery. Citing the words of Genesis 35 and 13, Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. This appears to be for Israel, as it was for his ancestors, a physical manifestation. The appearance bodily of the pre-incarnate Christ. And if that's so, it is for this moment with Israel the last such occurrence in Genesis. Moving along in 16 through 21, then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. 
So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Scripture gives us no reason for why Jacob and his party left Bethel, and so we'll affix none to it. Where Scripture remains silent, we too will do so. And it, like the incidents of Deborah being in his camp, would require only our speculation. What we do know is that in difficult labor, Rachel, before passing from life, the third burial, brings into this world new life. Just as Christ passing from this new old life gave new life to those he would bestow it upon. But in the throes of agonizing, recognizing the approach of death, Rachel indicts Jacob's final son with the name Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. Israel, though, calls his name Benjamin, son of my right hand. Can you see in these names a foreshadowing of God's own Son, who in Isaiah 53.3 is called a man of sorrows, and who we know, as he stands at the right hand of God, Genesis 22 tells a tragic story. Reuben's incestual relationship with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine wife. Once again, we can only wonder at Reuben's motivation for defiling Bilhah. Practically, it may have been motivation to preserve uh, his own birthright selfishly guarding that double portion of inheritance he, as the firstborn, was entitled to. By having sex with her, he defiles her and prevents his father from bearing more children with her. If that's true, because of Reuben's wicked concern over his status as eldest son, we find that he is aptly punished later in Genesis 49:4 by losing his firstborn rights. But here, interestingly, though we hear that Jacob hears of it, neither he nor God offer words of rebuke. Just because God doesn't immediately punish or correct doesn't mean he doesn't know. In Genesis 22b through 26, we read in orderly fashion the accounting of Reuben's sons, or of Jacob's sons, Reuben coming first. But we should note there that that is only a chronological listing and will not last 
inciting him as the firstborn. Lastly, in Genesis 27 through 29, And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Cariath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were a hundred and eighty years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the fourth funeral, the final funeral of the chapter. And as it records that Isaac died old and full of days, we should remember that he was full of days because he was full of God. He had a life of celebration, relationship, and blessing through God. One note, historically, that I want to make you aware of is that this account of Isaac's death actually occurs out of order chronologically and occurs after chapters 37 and 38 because we know from Scripture that he lived until about 15 years after Joseph had gone to Egypt. So in summary, before closing in prayer and our taking of communion, uh, I know we're uh, getting close to that time, let me offer uh, this. That Jacob's condition at Shechem isn't all that different from many Christians today. While we may appear to be walking near to God, the opposite may actually be true. Saints of God, have you a vow before God which you've far too long neglected? Has our Lord called you to a place that you've resisted going? I don't, I don't mean that just in a missional place of different tongues and different tribes. I mean that as a place in your holiness. Has God called you out and apart from this world and you still dragging one foot behind you? Are you fearful of the inhabitants of the land around you? Do you need to come out and go up and dwell in the holy place of God? Are you hiding or holding idols that need to be put off and buried? Are you clinging to the things of this world? Possessions, relationships, position. Drop those things from your hands. Find a tree to put them under. Devote yourself wholly to the God who saves. Do you need fresh dress in the righteousness of Christ? Are you tolerating sin in your life? Are you closing one eye to wickedness that you need be shed of?
do you need to reach out for the empowering of God's grace? Are you dwelling with God? Or are you let get clinging to the comforts of this world? As it comforted Jacob, so it should comfort God's people today that we, the beloved bride of Christ, can see and hear for ourselves each and every day in the whole of Scripture those words of life given by the Spirit of Christ, fresh echoes of that great promise first and long ago iterated to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob but in Christ made anew. Where in Hebrews 13, 5-6, He says, For He has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And 2 in Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the God who has been with us wherever we have gone. This is the God who will continue to watch and keep and guard us wherever we go. Are you here today without Christ? Are you absent this hope and this peace and this comfort? Are you absent and lacking the surety of God's provision and care? Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. I would say from this pulpit, arise. Go up to the cross of Christ. And there upon the altar of His shed blood, sacrifice with confession and repentance of your sins. And dwell forever in the house of God. Bow your heads with me, please. Let's close in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Your Word is truth. Your Word is good for us to hear. Ah, but Lord, unless You use Your Word effectually, it is merely the meager babblings of a man. And so, Father, I pray that you would make good and great use of your word today. That you would, for those here in Christ, bring sanctification and growth. That you would bring to recollection vows we have made and movement we need. That you would draw us by your Spirit ever nearer to you.
that we would shed ourselves of any idols we hold and that we would desire you ever more greatly this day, this day and every day forward. Father, for those here who do not know you, I pray, Lord God, that they would now know you. That you would use these words. That you would call them by your Spirit and open their eyes to their need for Jesus. And that they would arise and come to you. We give you this day and these lives, Lord, in the name of your precious Son and our mighty King, the Lord Jesus the Christ. Amen.